0: Hello everyone and welcome to The History of England, episode 145, The Agincourt Campaign, part 2. So, last week we got to the final casting off of the English fleet. We talked about the French king, his son the Dauphin, and his close council of dukes and marshals and constables, and the split between the Armagnac and Burgundy. So, let's get on with the action. But before we do, I bring glad tidings of great joy, folks, great joy. And there will be much rejoicing. I have two words for you. Animated maps, ladies and gentlemen, animated maps. We have two, one for the campaign and one for Agincourt itself. So hi thee to the website, lads and lasses, with my continuing thanks to Andy and my brother. And you can see the whole campaign captured for you in 14 easy slides. Okay, so Henry had a few strategic choices. And no doubt an attack from both Gascony and Normandy had been considered. But Gascony, although having the advantage of a safe base, was too far away from the centre of French power to be a sensible choice. Another possibility had been Calais. But the French would be expecting that. And anyway, Henry was going for something more permanent. Now that he'd been knocked back diplomatically, the gloves were off and he was going to be King of France, or at very least, Duke of Normandy. That meant these Normans were going to be his subjects, and just wandering around, eating bonbons, and burning and pillaging in the style of the old chevorsay wasn't going to win him permanent control or any friends from his new subjects. Having said that, it's August, and East Grinstead wasn't built in a day, so he'd be limited in what he could achieve so the strategy was probably to focus on the River Seine, running through Normandy to Paris. Phase one was probably to quickly capture a base at the entrance to the river, the town and the castle of Harfleur. And then, when he'd done that nice and quickly, advance to Rouen, further up the Seine and the capital of Normandy, take that, hunker down for the winter and be ready for Paris next year. But if he was going to achieve that, he'd need to be quick with Harfleur. Havre was both a great prize and a great challenge. In Normandy, it was second only to Rouen itself, renowned for its salt and weaving industries. The key to the sea for Normandy, reputed to be virtually impregnable, with two and a half miles of walls, a moat, 26 thick towers, and the river Lazard running through the centre, which assured the water supply. And inside, its citizens were ready and willing to fight to delay the English until relief could come from the Dauphin gathering his men at Rouen. But they did have a problem. Jean d'estuteville the captain of the garrison, had only 200 men to resist 12,000 English. He might simply be overwhelmed. The English landed on the 14th of August, 1415. Henry had two brothers with him, his eldest brother and heir, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, and his youngest, Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester. Thomas was an experienced commander, a weapon forged in the fire of the Welsh and French campaigns. Humph was a green 25-year-old, with a need for a bit of forging before he could describe himself as a weapon. John, Duke of Bedford, the middle brother and pick of the bunch, despite an appalling taste in haircuts had been made keeper of the realm and was back at home, keeping the home fires burning. Now, Henry had had his ups and downs with his brothers, as one does with brothers, particularly with Thomas. But from here on in, they were very much partners in the great enterprise. And so it was to Clarence on the 15th that Henry turned. And so it was to Clarence on the 15th of August that Henry turned. Brother Tom, he said, Brother Tom, go and invest that town. Sew it up as tight as a gnat's backside, so no one can get in and no one can get out. Meanwhile, let me introduce you to Raoul de Gaucor. Raoul had been with the French at the disaster of Nicopolis in crusade against the Turk. He was a brave warrior and a bailiff of Rouen. And at his side were 400 men desperate to taunt the English. He was three days away from Harfleur as Clarence set off to surround it and do the Nat's backside thing. It was a race against time. Could he get inside in time? Now, as it happens, Jean destuteville, though, had been clever. He'd flooded most of the land outside Harfleur, so the English had to take a large detour in order to encircle the walls. By the 18th of August, though, Harfleur was fully surrounded, and the English were beginning to do the pillaging thing for food, but there was one gap still on the eastern side of the town, and Raoul and his 400 mounted companions slipped through the Ginglish cordon and into the town. What this meant was that the job was now going to be significantly harder, and Henry, as we know, was working to a schedule. If he took too long at Half-Lure, he'd run out of time to do anything else. And so Henry's herald went to try and persuade Jean to capitulate. Gentle listeners, please now turn to your Bibles and open them at Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10-16. to 16 and there you will find the rules of war as far as towns were concerned. Let's give the first few verses a go. When you advance on a city, make an offer of peace. If the city accepts the offer and opens its gates to you, then all the people in it shall be put to hard labour and shall serve you. If it does not make peace with you, but offers battle, you shall besiege it, and the Lord your God will deliver it into your hands. You shall put all males to the sword, but you may take the women, the dependents and the cattle for yourselves and plunder everything else in the city. So actually, that's pretty crystal, isn't it? Given the offer, Harfleur chose to fight. Much has been made of the rules Henry announced to his men. Basically, they had to behave themselves or else. No rape and pillage do pay for food, that sort of thing. Henry's point was that this was land he claimed for his own, so there was a battle for hearts and minds, not just land. It has to be said that those rules were regularly broken, but they maybe had some impact. Some French chroniclers remarked on the contrast between alien English and the worse behaviour of their own troops. The Siege of Harfleur, in fact, was an exercise in frustration for Henry and an example of how hard it was to reduce a town when it was held with determination. Henry threw everything at it. He had five huge cannon, including one called the messenger, another called the king's daughter, chucking huge stone balls at the wall. And there's no doubt they did terrible damage to the walls, which were not designed for cannon. And every evening, the English felt cheered that tomorrow would be the chance to attack that nice, friendly-looking breach. But in the morning, all they found were improvised palisades and tubs of earth, that could absorb the impact of the huge stones much better than stone. The French spread clay on the stones inside the town to reduce the rolling and splintering of cannonballs. Nonetheless, by the 25th of August, Harfleur was being reduced to rubble, held together by men and temporary palisades. Now, this was a good thing from one angle of attacking the town, but a bad thing from another. The plan had been to have a powerful town at the mouth of the Seine, not a heap of stones at the mouth of the Seine. Meanwhile, diplomacy and communication was frantic. Henry received a defiant reply to his letter from the Dauphin. Jean d'Estouteville sent notes from Harfleur to the French commanders Charles d'Albret and Marshal Bouquicourt, who both had forces of 1,500 men in the region, while the main army assembled at the Rouen. On the 28th of August, the French Council sent letters for all fighting men to assemble at Rouen. There was one rather crucial name missing, the Duke of Burgundy. The Dauphin had decided that Duke John was not trustworthy enough, and so he didn't want him marching on Rouen with thousands of men, armed to the teeth. Instead, his brother, Antony the Count of Flanders, was summoned. And when another summons was issued on the 1st of September, again, the Duke was excluded. And it was an insult, a public sign that Duke John was not trusted to fight for his liege lord. Meanwhile, Henry was talking to both the Dukes of Brittany and John the Fearless. As far as Henry was concerned, these men, despite having declared for their liege lord, Charles VI, were actually on his side. But he was worried. He needed to know for sure, and Duke John of Burgundy was hardly Mr Reliable. By the 28th of August, Henry was trying every trick in the book. Trying to fill in the moat with bundles of faggots, which the defenders burnt with the help of oil. Then he built mines, which the defenders countermined. And on the other side of the town, Clarence threw his men in attack against the walls, but was thrown back with no success. Every night, Henry toured his army, encouraging and advising. But after two weeks, by the 1st of September, he had wanted to be on his way and then the entirely predictable disaster struck, Camp Fever, otherwise known, of course, as dysentery. With all those people stuck in the same place, with poor sanitation, it was pretty much inevitable. And on the 15th of September, Henry's close confidant, Bishop Courtney, Wycliffe's old adversary at Oxford, was dead from the disease. Henry's brother Clarence was shipped back home, along with the hog the Earl of March, and the English army was reduced by close to 1,500 men. Still the attacks went on, and on the 17th of September, after 35 days in France, with nothing to show for it, Henry demanded the town surrender, and when he was sent away empty-handed, prepared to throw everything at the walls of the town the following day, with a massive bombardment during the evening to prepare the way. For some reason this was enough. The straw that broke Harfleur's back And at last, the defenders sued for terms. On the 18th of September, those terms were set. The Dauphin had five days to relieve the town, or it would open up the gates. Harfleur had asked for twelve, but Henry was careful to make sure he didn't have another Aberystwyth on his hands. Now the king and the Dauphin were still wandering down the Seine, now at the town of Vernon. They could not respond yet to the pleas for help from Harfleur. The army at Rouen was nowhere near ready. In fact, they were panicking a bit. A French town was falling and they still hadn't had the contingents from the Duke of Burgundy. Duke John worried them. And the Duke of Lorraine was sent to talk him into it. Duke John then made much of the insult that he had not been asked to come in person, but in the background he was in fact gathering his army. But all of this was way too late to help Harfleur. And so on the 22nd of September, true to form, no relieving army appeared outside the walls and Goucourt and Estouteville handed over the town and were taken hostage. Now, the deal was this. Anyone who was anybody was shipped over to England to be ransomed or asked to go to Calais and give themselves up to be ransomed. Anyone prepared to swear allegiance to Henry could then stay in Harfleur and the rest were given five ecus and slung out on their ears. And now, we've had that hardy perennial conversation many times before about the treatment of conquered towns, like the Black Prince in 1370 at Poitiers, or Richard I outside Acre. Half the modern world saying he's a murdering, pitiless monster. The other half saying, oh, perfectly normal. Now, I belong to the second half. All jolly nasty and all the rest of it, but in history, context is everything. Henry could have had them all put to the sword. It's that Deuteronomy thing again. But in fact, they were spared and allowed to leave. OK, so everyone was very happy. Henry, madly pious as ever, gave up great thanks to God. But hate it or loathe it, the damage was done. Halfleur had not gone according to plan and had held out far too long. It was now the 22nd of September. The days were getting colder. It was way, way too late to go and attack Rouen. Worse, Henry had a whopping great big army still in the field, way more than was needed to take Half and they'd all sat around eating bonbons, getting dysentery and bankrupting the kingdom. And all Henry had to show for it was one town. Correction, all Henry had to show for it was one pile of rubble, formerly called a town. And then there's the third problem Henry now faced. Half was defenceless, a pile of rubble. As soon as Henry shipped out, the French would just ship in. So it depends on how you view Henry, as to how you describe the next bit. Essentially, Henry decided that although he would not have the time to take Rouen, he would have the time to do a bit of goading and wander through the Norman countryside, taking a trip to Calais. The historian J.H. Wiley saw Henry as madly pious and believing that just God would provide and all that. And he wandered into the French countryside without a plan. So to quote him, the most foolhardy and reckless adventure that ever an unreasoning pietist devised. Ouch. Once again, my opinion counts for nothing against that of a proper historian, but I would favour the opposite view. I would favour the view that says Henry took a calculated, high-risk strategy for very clear reasons. He decided to wander through the Norman countryside and take a trip to Calais. And he would do this because he had to pull the French army away from Harfleur. He had not had the time to rebuild the walls. The French would be able to retake it as soon as he had to take his army home. And then he'd have achieved nothing, zip, rien. Plus, he had this whopping great army, and I don't believe he did that because he was just a collector of soldiers. He did it because the evidence was that the English would give a French a beating in a pitched battle. And maybe, just maybe, The French had forgotten the eternal verities and the tactics that had allowed them to reverse every territorial gain Edward III had made, i.e. avoiding battle. If so, he would have a battle, a glorious victory, and the world would be his lobster. That would be a plus, but the main thing was to get safely to Calais with the French watching, rather than watching his new possession being retaken by them. Henry might indeed be a madly pious, self-important, cold-hearted egotist. But he had a brain on him, the lad, and he had the courage to take an approach which, if it went wrong, could see him in a French prison, miles from home, and his country to ransom. You have to admire that, at very least. Plus, of course, God loved him, so hey, why not? Let me also add that he apparently did this in the teeth of the combined advice of his counsel, even the militarily reckless Clarence, not yet shipped home, told him to stay put, don't court death. But Henry was made of sterner stuff. This was what he had been born for. There are two further bits of evidence that suggest that Henry wanted to draw the French away and get them to follow him. He sent a letter to the French saying exactly what he was going to do, so it was hardly a military secret then. And it took... Twelve more days until Henry was ready to move, and so hardly the actions of a man are hoping to slip into Calais before the French noticed him. Of course, there was stuff to do. There were men to ship home, the defences of Harfleur to see to. And in this, Henry always showed great trust in his uncles, the Beauforts, Thomas the Duke of Exeter and Henry Bishop of Winchester. And so it was Thomas, Duke of Exeter, who was put in control of the defences of Harfleur with 1,200 men. Meanwhile, the Earl of Warwick was sent ahead by sea to Calais to make sure there would be provisions when the army arrived there. And so now, Henry's main council on the march was composed of the Duke of York, his youngest brother, the Duke of Gloucester, and two barons, Thomas Herpingham and Lord Camois. They arranged themselves. The Duke of York was appointed constable and marshal and commander of the vanguard. Henry himself commanded the main battle, Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When he set out then, the consensus now seems to be that Henry had 9,600 men with him, considerably more than the 5,900 that were traditionally held to have been at Agincourt. These 9,600 would have been made up of about 1,500 men-at-arms, 7,000 archers and the rest hangers-on of various types, pages, that sort of thing. Ahead of him was approximately 144 miles, as he marched north towards the River Somme and Calais, and probably that meant a couple of weeks on the march. Now Henry was avoiding Rouen, marching along the coast towards the River Somme, with Rouen on his right. The parallels with the Cressy campaign of Edward III are all over the place, and it transpires that Henry was in fact aiming for that same hidden ford that had saved Edward all those years ago, and which was of course a secret no longer, Blanche Tac. It was high up on the River Somme near the coast, allowing Henry to stay close. It took Henry four days to get to Arc, 56 miles up on the coast as the crow flies, and negotiate with the castle there to let him pass unmolested, which was a pretty good pace. But the next day, 12th of October, he arrived in the much larger town of E and settled down for the night. Blanchetack was now 18 miles ahead. Everything was going to plan and before you could say Jack Robinson, he'd be across the river and away and clear to Calais, unchallenged by the look of things. On the French side, fear and confidence mixed, but confidence was gaining ground. There had been a bit of a panic. Rumors that Duke John was about to attack Paris had led to the whole place being re-fortified. Then rumors had been heard that he told his vassals in Picardy, i.e., the lands closest to Normandy, where Henry was, not to muster. But by the 12th of October, the John had reassured everyone that he would, in fact, march to the support of the French crown. So everybody felt better. Having said that, they might have noticed that he was, in fact, sitting at a place called Gemol, which was miles away from Paris and a long, long way away from Blanche Tac. And they might have been even more worried if they realised that in Westminster a letter had arrived from John himself reassuring the English that everything would be OK, he would not get in the way of Henry's march. Essentially, John the Fearless was playing both ends. Which was what John the Fearless had been born to play, and wise But apart from that, French preparations were in fact going rather well, if a little belated. The King's summons had brought a response. Two armies were now gathering. North of the Somme, Charles d'Albret and Marshal Bouquicourt were gathering an army, many of whom were vassals of Duke John. This is important. The presence of a large group of men north of the Somme allowed the French to call the shots from here on in, either being ready to exploit the advantage of an army crossing a river or playing the same old game they'd played back in 1346, i.e. breaking the bridges over the Somme, guarding the fords and forcing the English away from sustenance and safety of Calais towards desperation, defeat and despair. So, as they sat at Rouen, the French leaders developed a plan, and here it is. Henry would be met at Blanchetac. Forcing a river forward would be time-consuming, expensive in men, and at the other side the English would emerge in chaos and be vulnerable to attack and wiped out. If Henry did not engage at Blanchetac, then they'd force him inland, force him to travel along the river to the head of the river, which would allow the French even more time to build an even greater superiority and men, sacre bleu. Even then, the French feared the English archers, and the battle plan would have to deal with them. So the order of battle was pretty traditional, but also bore this in mind. There would be a vanguard commanded by the most experienced military commanders, Constable Dalbray and Marshal Bucicourt. The main battle would be commanded by the Duke d'Alençon. But there were two wrinkles to the plan, two contingents of heavily armed cavalry with very specific jobs. One of them would drive straight at the English archers on the wings and scatter the poorly armoured contingent, leaving the inferior English men-at-arms at the mercy of the French. The second group of cavalry was a squadron to attack the English baggage from behind, and distract Henry at a critical moment in the battle. So, the 13th of October was a critical day, because this was the day when the English were going to cross the river and head towards Calais. At first light, the English broke camp and marched north, but when the army was six miles away, a Gascon was taken prisoner, and claiming to have greater loyalty to Henry as Duke of Aquitaine, he revealed that the French were already at Blanchetac, waiting for him. And they were waiting with 6,000 men. So from here on in, the wheels seemed to be coming off the English plan. Henry called a halt and met with his council for two hours, so it clearly wasn't an easy decision. And in the end, they decided not to try to force the Ford, but to move upstream in an attempt to find another crossing. And so round one had gone to France. Henry was now moving away from Calais at every step. His choices hadn't been great, fight in the water or search for a crossing with the French watching. By the 14th, the English were losing heart and beginning to panic. The next bridge at Pont Rémy was reported broken. The food the English had carried from Harfleur had run out and the French were laying waste to the land ahead. There was in all likelihood plenty of dysentery and poo about. And anyway, even if they did manage to survive starvation or disease and reach the head of the river Somme, it was becoming clear there were more Frenchmen about than flies on a pile of poo. So the future they were marching to was looking far from comfortable. One of the chroniclers was an eyewitness to both the march and the battle, and he gives us a soupçon of the plunging morale in the English camp. I and many others in the army looked up in bitterness to heaven, seeking the clemency of providence, and called upon the glorious Virgin and St George to intervene between God and his people, and in his infinite mercy deliver from the swords of the French our King and his people. Without any other hope but this, we hastened on. All they could do was keep marching looking for a crossing but the pace had slowed as well as they were forced to forage for food on the march and investigate every potential crossing point. The French king and his council were still at Rouen. The Duke of Orléans, destined to be the overall French commander, was riding to join them. Even the Duke of Brittany, who apparently had an agreement with Henry, was now moving to join the French with an army of 6,000. Meanwhile, Henry was already caught between two armies, one north of the Somme and the other at Rouen. On the 17th of October, Henry passed a bridge unbroken, but ignored it, because the French were holding it with an unchallengeable force. Morale in the English army continued to plummet. They were being controlled and managed by an enemy with superior numbers and superior position. There was one piece of good news. John the Fearless was still right where he ever was at Bourne, and showing no sign of joining the French army quite clearly he wasn't going to make it but he was happy for john everything was falling out as he could possibly for john everything was falling out as well as he could have possibly expected he just couldn't lose his vassals from picardy had joined the french so he could claim to be supporting his boss and simply doing what he was told by staying out of the fight personally but he could also look henry in the eye and tell him he'd honored their agreement by not joining the fight personally and so he sat back ordered a bit more wine and chilled out. On the 18th of October, the English reached rock bottom when they reached the town of Nell and watched the citizens hang out their colours in defiance, probably accompanied by cries about elderberries and hamsters and that sort of thing. In fury and panic, Henry ordered his men to burn the countryside around. But then, just as things looked to be at their worst, when everything was at its darkest, a bit like Edward all those years ago, there appeared on the horizon the tiniest light of the dawn of hope. Someone had heard that there was an unguarded crossing nearby. And the next day they found it, a half-broken causeway that could be crossed and could be mended, and no French force anywhere in sight. Somehow from across the river the French had lost touch with the English army, and by the time the French scouts reappeared it was too late because by the following day, on the 19th of October, enough of the English were across to form a solid bridgehead. And now English spirits rose again. Now once again, they were masters of their own destiny. It's also worth reminding ourselves that it's highly likely Henry always intended to fight. If he'd been making a dash for Calais to give the French the medieval equivalent of a Mooney, it's very unlikely he'd have waited so long at Harfleur before setting out. But who knows how Henry felt about all of this now. I'd be surprised if he hadn't lost just a little bit of sleep, and that if deep down he didn't really wish he was safe and sound in Calais. In the French camp, the news that the English had crossed the river was greeted with something of a, whatever, yawn, so bored. After all, their feeling was they were going to give the English a beating anyway. By this time, the warlike Duke of Bourbon had joined the king, the Dauphin, and the Duke of Berry at rouen still well south of the English, but clearly ready to move north. And the remaining part of the puzzle was the Duke of Orléans, who needed to join the Northern army as leader before they could insert the sword of truth, lightened justice and supremacy of all things French into the English vitals. The Duke of Bourbon, meanwhile, legged it at high speed north to Peronne, just a few miles west of Henry's position on the Somme, and called the French leaders in the north together. In the village of Peronne. Bourbon was feeling bullish, confident, aggressive and dealing with surges of hormones. This is the man who had founded the Order of the Prisoner's Shackle for the sole purpose of fighting the English. Bourbon did not like the English, not one little bit. So together with Marshal Bukicor and Constable Charles Dalbray, they decided enough was enough. Skates needed to be applied to feet. Boots needed to be applied to English backsides. So by the 26th of October... They would bring the English to battle and, bug-like, squish them. They were also joined by the Count of Nevers, son of John the Fearless of Burgundy, who was itching to stick it to the English, no matter what his dad thought. In Rouen, at the same time, the king was in council with 35 of the greatest magnates of the land. 30 of these 35 shared the general bullishness and aggression of Bourbon to the north. It was time to fight. And they all agreed Orléans would be their leader rather than the Dauphin. So 6,000 men left with the Duke of Brittany to swell the ranks of the army up north. On the 20th of October, three French heralds rolled into the English camp. And they were met by Edward, Duke of York. York, at this stage, seemed to be basically the commander of the march. Officially, commander of the Third Battle, he also seemed to be both marshal and constable. So once he'd assured himself this pair of heralds were serious, they were shown into the presence of the king. The following Thursday, they declared, they would fight the English at Aubigny, which lay northwest between Henry and Calais. Be there or be square. Henry courteously accepted the challenge and sent the French on their way with precious gifts. By now, the English and the French army of the north were close together, the English often marching on roads already churned up by the French feet. English morale had sunk once more, intimidated by the size of the French numbers. The rest of the troops, fearing that battle was imminent, raised our eyes and hearts to heaven, crying out that God would have pity on us and turn us away from the violence of the French. And interestingly, Henry's route of march at this point was a not towards Aubigny, and B, a jolly nippy 15 miles a day. North-east of them, the French army was beating a hasty path parallel to the English towards the site of the battle at Aubigny. So what was going on? Had Henry bottled it and decided that his army was in no-fit state and time to run for home? Certainly it looks as though his advisers and magnates had bottled it for him and were telling the lad that discretion was the better part of valour, live to fight another day, no-go the bogeyman all that sort of thing. You never know. It could be that Henry needed to keep a distance so that he could forage for food, or that he still intended to fight, but had no intention of fighting on a field identified by the French, which no doubt favoured them. As they marched, these two armies, we mustn't think of them tramping along grimly in two separate universes. I mean, yes, there'd have been a lot of grim tramping. In fact, more grim tramping than you can shake a stick at, but there would have been plenty of contact. Around the edges of the main column was a cloud of fighting men. There were the scouts, far ahead, reporting back on French movement. There were the herbergers, which is what the foragers were called, groups of armed men basically robbing villages to feed the army. The thought of keeping the native peasantry happy was now, in the panic of extremity, basically history. And then alongside the army there would have been a protective screen of cavalry, And of course, the French were doing exactly the same thing, so surprise, surprise, they would sometimes meet up, clash, fight, win or die. From the 20th, it looks as though basically Henry's army was fully armoured all of the time, because the battle could come at any time, and because danger and violence were always close. The French had legged it as hard as they could to get to Albigny first and get things sorted out. At some point, they discovered that Henry was bottling it and seemed to be trying to slip away. Not on your nelly, swore the French sacred blue. Their objective now was to get ahead of the English and block them from reaching Calais. On the 24th of October, as Henry crossed the River Canche, fighting became more intense between squadrons of French and English outriders. The armies were close, and it became clear that the pinch point was a village called Blagny-sur-Tournoise, because that was the next river between the English and Calais, and if the French could get there first and hold it, the English would have to fight with no safe retreat. On the 24th, the Duke of York reached the hill above the village and saw the French desperately trying to build up the defences, but they were too late, and the English attacked and secured the bridge. But ahead, charging down the hill across the river, came one of the Duke's scouts. By the time he reached the duke and threw himself out of the saddle in front of his commander, the scout was out of breath and clearly in a panic. As he recovered his breath, he gasped to the duke. Be prepared quickly for battle, for you are about to fight against such a huge host that it cannot be numbered. The French had won the race, were ahead of the English, and to survive, Henry would have to fight his way through them. Next time, at last, I will put you out of your misery and we will have the Battle of Agincourt, finally. Thanks to everyone who responded to the Facebook poll on the Weekly Word. It's here to stay, by the looks of things, and at the end of each episode. I suspect, incidentally, that I shall run out of ideas at some point, possibly quite quickly, but hey. Finally, then, some generous donators for me to thank. Thomas, Janita, Mary and David... Matthew, Robert, Jim, Krista, Ryan, Kathy, Jacob, Andrew, Gary, Simon, Oak Rigette, Mary and Paul. Thanks to all of you for listening. For your comments on the website, iTunes, Facebook and all that sort of thing. Good luck and have a great week.